0: everyone. Uh, Welcome back to the Rooster Crows podcast. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the effects of homelessness on a person's physical and mental health. A lot of the time when we walk down the street and we see someone begging on the side of the street or we see someone who is obviously experiencing homelessness, uh, I suspect that our first thought is that they have something wrong with them and that's why they're homeless. Perhaps they have some sort of Mental health problem or a physical disability, or maybe they just didn't want to work, or perhaps they've got a substance use problem, um, and that's why they're homeless. But as I've been getting to know this issue better and getting to know homeless people better over the years, I started to wonder mm, that's probably not the whole story. So uh, today, what I want to do is talk to Roxy Danielson, who is a street nurse who works in Toronto, and her clientele are people who live on the street. And I have a simple question for her. Does living on the street affect your health? And what would it do to a healthy person if they were suddenly without a home and had to live on the street? So here's our conversation with Roxy. So Roxy, it's wonderful to have you here. Welcome to the Rooster Crows podcast. And I wonder if you could just give a little bit of background about how you ended up being a street nurse.
1: Great, yeah, and thank you for having me here. So a little bit about me. So I graduated nursing in 2013, and a big reason for me getting into street nursing is because I felt this kind of nursing was so raw and so real and definitely fed into my passion of that. In nursing school, I actually saw Kathy Crowe's video, Street Nurse, and that really inspired me to become a street nurse myself. And so I was born and raised in Ottawa, and I moved to Toronto for this job specifically, and I've been here since 2014, working as a street nurse ever since.
0: I wonder if we could just go through what happens if a perfectly healthy person becomes homeless. Um, what sort of effects that has on them. And let's start with the physical effects. If someone's been living on the street for a week or two, do you notice things which are happening with their health?
1: We do. And living, being homeless does have a lot of uh, detrimental health effects, unfortunately. We see that, well, first of all, monthly at the homeless memorial. So every single month, the second Tuesday of the month at the Church of the Holy Trinity, more names are added to the memorial. Uh, for folks who have died on the streets in Toronto. We see this with life expectancy. Unfortunately, somebody who's homeless typically dies around age 50 compared to the average age of death, which is about 80 years old in Toronto. And so living outside or living in shelter does have detrimental effects. Living outside, depending if it's winter or summer, but we'll take winter since that's the season now, Uh, You can see things like frostbite, hypothermia, uh, people freeze to death outside. So even one night outside in our extreme weather is very dangerous. And so that's why we need a national housing program to get folks housed because living outside is just so terrible for your health.
0: And so let's walk through this kind of slowly. So, you know, uh, I think a lot of us on the cold nights, we see people sleeping on the TTC or sleeping in um, ATM, you know, bank bank shelters kind of things. Um, how is it that people end up freezing to death? I mean, there are warm places in the city overnight, even if you can't get into the shelter system, right?
1: Yeah, there just isn't enough warm places in the city and a little bit to what you were speaking about before, there's misconceptions as to why people become homeless. I think there's a fear of homeless people, unfortunately, and so when people do try to find refuge in places like TTC or in other de facto shelters, say something like a Tim Hortons or a McDonald's, homeless folks are kicked out immediately. And again, with the warming centers, there just isn't enough across the city. There's about 100 to 200 people who are turned away from a shelter bed each night. And so people do end up outside, more so during the pandemic. And even I saw this with my clients or the folks that I work with, is that living in shelter in a congregate setting puts you at a really high risk of getting COVID and other diseases, of course. And so people did turn to sleep outside.
0: Right. Um, and I guess one of the things which, uh, was a surprise for many of us was that, you know, the city was saying, okay, we'll open the warming centers when it gets to minus 15 degrees because we don't want anyone to freeze mm-hmm. to death. But then some of the doctors in the city have been saying, actually, the risk of freezing to death is way closer to just a uh, temperature zero, like zero degrees. It doesn't have to be super cold to freeze to death. Can, have you encountered people who have suffered from frostbite or even frozen to death?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I believe Dr. Stephen Wong did a really great research or report on that as well that people can freeze and get cold weather injuries for temperatures warmer than negative 15. And even though we do have this information and coming from a well respected doctor, we still don't listen to that. So we need warming centers open, not just at negative 15 or colder, but all winter season. And I know many activists have been calling for that. And unfortunately, we don't have them. And so in turn, people continue to be turned away every single night during the winter time, getting these cold-related injuries.
0: Okay. And I'm wondering, like, I, I go to work on the TTC and I see um, people sleeping on the TTC during the day. Um, what's it like just physically for a person to have interrupted sleep like i'm just trying to imagine how they get through a 24-hour period like when do they i know it's not one size fits all but for Mm -hmm. someone who's say not living in an encampment not living in a tent and also not living in a shelter they're just truly outside where do they sleep and what do they suffer suffer from sleep deprivation
1: Yeah, and lack of sleep has a lot of really negative health effects that people don't think about. I think the average person thinks that we can function normally off of no sleep, like we've all done it, but cognitively we're not sharp when we haven't slept, but also we heal when we sleep as well. And so if you imagine if you're somebody who has to sleep outside or is not getting any sleep at all, any physical or mental ailments that you have, you're not gonna heal from, and ultimately it adds more stress onto your body and contributes to other diseases as well. Not to mention just the sheer uh, you know, mental trauma of not having a place to sleep, not feeling safe and secure, you know? Or if you are recovering from say, I don't know, a broken leg or, or surgery that you just had, imagine having no place to rest, no place to keep your medications to take. You know, you're constantly worried about where you're going to sleep. All of that adds up, and it definitely adds, um, you know, negative health effects to a person. Sleep is very important, and I think that's something that we don't think about enough.
0: Well, I guess, you know, we're, in the movies, we see that, you know, if you want to torture someone, the first thing you do is you deprive them of sleep.
1: You know? Exactly, yep.
0: And we're kind of doing that systemically to, you know, thousands of people. Um, every day in this city by depriving them of a safe place to sleep. Yeah. And do you find that um, sort of uh, health concerns, um, which might not be a significant problem for people who are getting up sleep in her house, become, you know, sort of persistent chronic problems for people who are living on the street?
1: Oh, definitely. Again, it's coming from a place of you don't have a a good place to rest your body. You don't have a a place to feel safe and secure. And so that stress adds to your body and any ailments that you have. You don't have a place to keep your medication safe. Sometimes people, a big one that I see, believe it or not, is people lose track of time when they're sleeping outside, especially if they don't have a watch or a phone, and so making it to appointments or taking your medications at the correct time becomes an issue as well, but also when you're sleeping outside, your main priority is Well, safety and survival. And so everything else sort of falls off the wayside, such as making it to important social or medical appointments or follow ups with your doctor or or things, surgeries and hospital. A, A lot of things actually gets thrown off to the side when you're just in survival mode.
0: We, we hear a lot in the news that it's really important for people who are housed to have a family doctor that health outcomes are much improved if you 've got someone who you can see every six months or so. What happens when you don't have any kind of doctor what How do homeless people get health care? Is it from folks like yourself or
1: well exactly and and that part is actually difficult, but you're right. having a family doctor definitely does help improve your health significantly um, and when you don't have one either all these physical, chronic or acute issues don't get addressed. So even things that seem not dangerous like diabetes or high blood pressure, things that we can treat easily just don't get treated at all. And so over time, that does lead to more like um, uh, like dangerous situations. Like when you have chronically high blood pressure, that could eventually lead to heart attack or stroke having diabetes untreated can lead to a lot of things you know it could lead to a loss of limb it could lead to your vision being decreased and that could also kill you as well down the road so these things that we can treat easily just aren't being treated when somebody doesn't have proper follow-up with a doctor Um, and so Uh, generally people who don't have family doctors they end up having to go to the emergency room because there just isn't enough family doctors for everyone which in itself is a whole other issue that we're facing here in Ontario and because people don't have family doctors and they're going to emergency rooms then that's now clogging up emergency rooms with unnecessary visits that could go to a family doctor And if you choose not to go to a family doctor and instead go to a walk-in clinic, If you're just going to walk-in clinics all the time, unfortunately doctors there don't get to know you very well because you just go for an appointment every now and again and generally you see somebody different every time. And so a lot of things fall through the cracks. But also routine screenings like cancer screenings and things of that nature, those things don't generally get addressed in walk-in clinics either. And so really it's best that you have a family doctor that can follow you, can get to know you, can create a care plan with you. Um, to support your health goals. And so we really do need to get more family doctors. In my case, we We are very low barrier, which is great, and we still accept patients all the time, and our mandate is to support folks who are unhoused. There's also other programs in the community. I know through Inner City Health Associates, ICHA, they have a scout program where they do outreach to people who are living outside to deliver them health care as well, which is great because another thing is if you're living outside, a lot of the time people don't want to come inside for their appointments, like medical appointments, because that means leaving your tent and your belongings behind that could potentially get stolen from other folks or from the city, because the city is still sweeping encampments and if they see a tent that's empty, then they'll just get rid of it. But that person could just be stepped away for a medical appointment or something else, Um, but it'll look like nobody's there and that it's vacant and then their belongings will all get removed. And so there is a big issue with people making it to family doctor's appointments on many levels, but definitely we do need people to be connected to medical supports.
0: I guess that raises another issue. When you mentioned diabetes, um, can we talk about the diet that people have when they're living on the street? Um, they, I, I don't imagine that they're having a great diet.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, both living on the streets and in shelter, but you're right. Well, to my previous point, if you're living in an encampment or in a tent and you don't want to leave your belongings behind, it's really hard to leave to go get food. And so there's actually a lot of people who are hungry that are living outside, unfortunately. There are many volunteers that do go by to try to deliver food, but it's certainly not enough. But as well, when you're living on OW or ODSP, it's just not enough money to live. And so the only things you can afford are the foods that aren't very healthy for you or foods that are... You know, very high in starch or carbohydrates, like we're talking the pasta, rice, potato breads, those are all very cheap foods, but unfortunately those starchy foods are very high in sugar, and so it does put you at increased risk for diabetes. Same thing with folks living in shelters. Unfortunately, shelters generally do provide cheap food, like all the ones that I just mentioned, and so it is really hard to have a proper diet when you're homeless. Another issue, well I suppose both with living in encampment and in shelter, is that you can't have your own fridge to store your own healthy food. So even if you wanted to make healthier choices and buy more fruits and vegetables, you don't really have anywhere to store it, which is an issue as well.
0: So would it be fair to say that if an otherwise healthy person ended up on the streets and was there for, say, three to six months, would they experience um, a series, a sort of cascading decline in their health on various, uh, various levels relative to, say, one of their friends which is still, who is still housed?
1: I absolutely would think that, and I have seen that from people, especially so with the pandemic. We saw a lot of people who unfortunately lost their jobs or were laid off, and because of that became homeless. And so imagine that big shift of having your life, you know, you were housed, you had your job, you felt stable and secure, you were able to buy all the food that you want. And then to lose all that and become homeless is really devastating and so one there's a big adjustment learning how to be homeless because especially if you're living outside it is a game of survival and so even a couple months living outside can do a lot of damage to you especially if you're not prepared especially so during the extreme weathers, which we do experience here in Toronto, such as a very hot summer or a very cold winter. And unfortunately, there just isn't enough social programs here to support people, you know, including things like drop-ins for people to attend if they do need to get support from people. A lot of these programs are being cut, unfortunately. And so even a couple months outside can do a lot of damage to you, especially so if you're not prepared
0: and let's talk about the psychological impact of that those first, you know, 3 to 6 months. What happens to folks? I mean, it must be it must be really depressing to have gone from being able to pay your own bills and, you know, live in a place by yourself to suddenly being on the street with all the sort of the attitude and stigma that comes with that.
1: Oh, most definitely. And I hear that from everybody I talk to who's homeless. Being homeless is terrible for your mental health and again during the pandemic a lot of people got shuffled around from shelter to shelter to hotel to hotel and so even just that constant moving and not knowing where you're going to land or how long you're even going to be in that same spot that in itself is really traumatizing for people same with living outside, because there were a lot of encampment clearings, and they were quite violent with the police. And so imagine living outside, you're essentially living in fear if the police or the city is going to come sweep your belongings and toss them out. You just never have that sense of security and that stress. There's always that underlying stress that you're living with, essentially. you know. And I think especially for people who are living outside, that's why we're, we were seeing people you know, living in more hidden places and further away from the core because they didn't want to be found by the city or the police. They just want to be left alone, you know, to have their place of security and comfort because moving around so much is really traumatizing.
0: And um, usually when people talk about uh, mental health, they say that, well, um, if you're feeling stressed all the time, that will have that will undermine your physical health since your immune system reacts to all those, um, uh, you know, the cortisol injections and stuff that you get from your body naturally when it's in a fight or flight kind of situation. So homeless people are basically being put through a psychological experience which impairs their immune system. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. That's definitely correct. We see that a lot, and you're totally right, that stress, having that increased level of stress all the time does add to a lot of different ailments, including, as I mentioned earlier, hypertension. Being stressed does increase your blood pressure and could put you at increase for heart attack and stroke, you know, and so people who are homeless generally do have a lot more physical health um, illnesses because of that.
0: Okay, well, and um, can you talk about uh, what living on the street does for the incidence of anxiety and depression among people in this situation?
1: It has a big effect. Um, Again, I see it a lot with people who were either newly living on the streets or have been living on the streets for quite some time. And again, it comes from that place of not feeling secure and not having a place that you can come home to to rest and to heal and you just always have that fear, that anxiety that somebody's going to come, such as the city or the police, to get rid of your belongings. And then in terms of the depression, you alluded to it earlier, But a lot of people look down on people who are homeless, unfortunately. There's just this long-standing hate against people who are poor. And people who are homeless know that. And I've had many clients tell me that they don't even go to a shopping mall because they feel like people are staring at them and know that they're homeless. And that does a lot to your mental health. Feeling unwanted by society is just such a terrible feeling. And I've heard this countless times as well. Another big issue going along with that is people accessing hospitals. Again, I've been told many times by my clients who are unhoused that they're reluctant to go to hospitals because when they enter, people know that they're homeless and security will immediately come and remove them, and often in a really violent way. So imagine thinking that society hates you and that nobody wants to help you, that does a lot for your mental health, uh, including depression and anxiety. And I've heard this countless times over the years.
0: And I guess in the rest of society, if you're suffering from depression, you go see your family doctor, your family doctor will suggest either counseling or perhaps medication. But those avenues are much harder to access for homeless folks, right? So they just live with untreated depression and anxiety, I imagine
1: exactly and while we can medicate people with antidepressants it doesn't change their situation and so they're still living outside they're still unhoused and so that stigma is always there and people who are unhoused know that and so medication doesn't fix that part of it either not to mention medication doesn't always help alone people who are depressed
0: right um so just to take stock here Um, so what you've been saying is that someone who's otherwise healthy ends up on the street, they can expect to suffer from physical and mental health deterioration just by virtue of being on the street. They won't have access to healthcare properly. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm sort of interested in this because it sort of flips the narrative on its head. You know, if someone's passing by and they see a homeless person begging for money, they go, oh, well, you're not fit to work. Well, actually they were fit to work. (laughs) they were fit to work they just lost their housing losing housing doesn't mean you're not fit to work but the ability to work of course you need to be able to get out of bed in the morning right you can't be horrifically depressed right you need to have decent health so that you can get out of bed in the morning and go do some physical labor but what you've been talking about is a progressive deterioration in a person's physical ability right
1: exactly yep That's right. Many people that I work with who are homeless, a lot of them had very rich and fulfilling lives prior to becoming homeless. You know, they were doctors and lawyers and artists and all these other beautiful things. And so when I hear people look down on folks who are unhoused, it makes me really sad because over the course of the nine years that I have been a street nurse, I got to know folks who are homeless so intimately. And they are some of the most kind people just like anybody else and so if there was one thing I would say is for people to try to lose that judgment against people who are homeless because they are just like you and I.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. um uh, The local shelter in our North Toronto uh, neighborhood is called the Roehampton Shelter, and during the pandemic, they, Sunnybrook Hospital came over to do vaccine vaccination drives, and they assumed that they'd be able to do them just between nine and six in the day because you know people are living in the shelter; they'll just come downstairs and get vaccinated. But they found that there were tons of people who were just missing; they weren't in the building, so they ended up keeping the vaccination clinic open till like eight or nine o'clock. And what they discovered much to their surprise was there are all sorts of people who showed up and who were willing to get vaccinated, but they were at work. Yep. Right. Like, you know, uh, uh, we, we think of people who don't have homes as being inherently unemployed, but that's not actually the case. Um, you know, there are people who are employed who are, you know, also um, without homes because housing is ridiculously expensive and wages are low right
1: exactly yep
0: so you had mentioned that um you before we started this conversation we were talking about your background and you had mentioned that you had been on the steering committee for the shelter and housing justice network which is a an organization in toronto which um defends Uh, the rights of people who are on the streets, but also is an advocacy organization and has done a great job in trying to bring the public and the city of Toronto's attention to these problems. But you said you're no longer on the steering committee. Can you talk about why that is?
1: Yeah, so you're right. The Shelter and Housing Justice Network is a really great advocacy group, and I highly recommend that folks get involved with them if they do want to try to support in some way. For me, I needed to step back because I felt so burnt out, not just with the advocacy piece, but with my job. As I was mentioning earlier, unfortunately, a lot of folks who are unhoused die prematurely just by virtue of being homeless. And so that really took a toll on me and it was just exacerbated by the pandemic as well. Getting to know people so intimately, especially for me as a primary care nurse working in the community, I've known my clients for years and years and years, and naturally you grow a bond with them. And so when people die, especially at the levels that people are dying when they're homeless, it does take a toll on you. And unfortunately, when you're advocating and you're demanding better from all three levels of the government and the government doesn't listen to you, it feels like you're shouting into the void. And it truly feels so demoralizing. And it just got to the point where I needed to step back because it felt too much for me and for my mental health. And so if I wanted to continue doing this work, I knew that I needed to protect myself and I needed to step back, unfortunately, from being more involved in these advocacy groups. Thankfully, now I'm in a bit of a better place mentally. I started doing poetry. I started writing a lot more in the past year, which has been really healing for me. Um, but I think burnout is a big thing that people don't consider, especially for us community workers, especially for us who are working with folks who are unhoused. It's it's uh, it's very devastating, you know. And if it's bad for us workers witnessing this, imagine what folks who are unhoused are going through. Like, it's just terrible. The way that our city treats homeless folks is awful.
0: And um, perhaps this would be a good time if you wouldn't mind reading one of your poems.
1: Yeah, I would love to. So I wrote a reverse poem that can be read in both directions, and it's called hope in a hopeless time so reading it the first way shows the hopelessness of the situation and reading it the reverse way shows the hope In a city where only the rich can thrive as people made to feel hopeless endlessly pushed just to survive so we aren't able to fight the greed and power because people rose to be among those hoarding all the money fighting to take down the rest of society, continuously demanding more prosperity. Now we are left, believing we are worthless, but still, they're ripping us apart through social murder. The rich have blood on their hands because money doesn't care. Never again will greed matter about the lives of you and me for all the people who've died on the streets. So now I'll read it the reverse way. For all the people who've died on the streets, about the lives of you and me, never again will greed matter, because money doesn't care, the rich have blood on their hands. Through social murder, they're ripping us apart, believing we are worthless, but still, now we are left. Continuously demanding more prosperity, fighting to take down the rest of society, among those hoarding all the money, because people rose to be able to fight the greed and power, so we aren't endlessly pushed just to survive as people made to feel hopeless in a city where only the rich can thrive.
0: So one last question for you then, um, as you know, the Toronto, the Toronto budget process just concluded for the 2023 budget and, uh, $48 $48 million was allotted to the police, and um, uh, motions to redirect some of those funds towards social services and warming centres were turned down, with one small exception. One the warming centre will be able to stay open 24-7 for the next couple months. months. For, for the people who are living on the street, is their health impacted by the way in which they are policed?
1: Oh, definitely. And just to step back for a moment, we often talk about social determinants of health, so things that do affect health. And politics is a social determinant of health. And so this is politics. The fact that policing are getting a bigger budget says a lot about your health, because unfortunately, to your point, uh, Vulnerable communities and the unhoused communities are over policed and so again when we look at the encampment clearing there was a violent uh, clash between policing and unhoused folks. I know a lot of my clients have had terrible interactions with the police you know, they're they're handled really aggressively, they're thrown into jail for, like, the littlest things, they're often fined these huge amounts for things such as panhandling, you know, these fines that people cannot afford. Policing has a huge effect on your health, especially so for folks who are unhoused, and so when I heard about that, that policing got a bigger budget and really important resources such as drop-ins or more warming centers that they didn't get funding, that was really hard to hear because, again, we need more social programs to support our communities, to help them thrive. But when you see policing getting a bigger budget and then you see uh, social programs for folks who are unhoused or who are poor not getting any money, it just shows who the city cares about and again toronto does not care about people who are homeless we have seen this time and time again one warming center is not enough again One to two hundred people are turned away from shelter every single night, you know. We need more places for people to go. Ideally, we would get a national housing program to ensure that every single person could eventually be housed in decent, dignified, and truly affordable housing. We need something like that, but unfortunately, we're not getting it. And we're just getting a bigger bloated police budget that harms our community.
0: Yeah, and I guess the police's job, right, is to scatter people, not allow them to congregate, at least in terms of um, homeless people, right?
1: Correct, and, yep.
0: And we know from, we know from other uh, sources that for people who are housed, you know, loneliness is terrible for you. Yeah. Loneliness is toxic, basically. And um, one of the things which uh, people who are living outside say that the encampments are actually good for their mental health. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I've definitely heard that because encampments are a community of people who are supporting one another and caring for one another. And you're right, loneliness does kill. There has been many research studies on that. Loneliness just increases your stress. And as we talked about earlier, stress does impact your health greatly. I have had clients who were housed independently from shelter, and they actually ended up going back to shelter because they wanted to be among their community and their friends. And so I have seen that many times, not even just one example, many times I, I can think of where people have done that because they want to be with their community. Loneliness kills.
0: Yeah, It's interesting, right? We have this uh, ideology that individualism is the highest goal. And yet uh, the individualism of being utterly alone especially when you're living on the streets, as we've talked about today, is deadly. Um, uh, you know, we, it sounds like as a city, by, by condoning this, by allowing this to happen, we're basically um, forcing people into uh, mental health and physical distress, which would be illegal under any other circumstance. I mean, we've kind of found a systemic form of torture, which we cover up as individual fault.
1: Oh, absolutely, yep. And that's why many people use the term social murder because there are a lot of policies from our government that do end up killing people such as something like that. These encampment clearings are displacing people where they have nowhere to go because again, there's no room into the shelters and there's no housing available for people. And so we're displacing them away from their community, from their supports and from the safety that they found in their encampments. We're displacing them and pushing them further apart, further away from supports and we are ultimately killing people, we're, we're keeping people outside without any supports, um, health supports or social supports whatsoever, and it does kill people. And that's why, again, we're seeing the average age of death of a homeless person to be about 50 years old, it's terrible.
0: Are there other cities or jurisdictions who are doing this better, where they've found ways to, you know, solve this or at least do it better?
1: That's a really good question. I would imagine, I haven't looked into it, but I know Scandinavian countries have more social programs and I would hope something like that, more social programs, perhaps a country with a national housing programs, places like that, they would do better for folks who are homeless versus countries that prioritize policing, that prioritize, you know, the private housing market and getting developers and landlords rich, which is sort of the situation that we're seeing here in Toronto. I am interested in looking more into countries that are doing it better. I have an idea of what would make a place better, but that's not something I have had time to look into, unfortunately. I know that I'm sure there's tons of housing experts here in Toronto and other activists that could answer that question better, but... I what I do know is that we can do better and we have seen better again Canada used to have a national housing program where I believe that we were the goal was to make 20,000 housing units a year to help support folks who didn't have a housing but we killed that program and I believe 1993 and since that time homelessness has proliferated but we have examples here in Canada of when we were doing better. And so I know that we can do it.
0: Well, Roxy, why don't we leave it there? Thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been really, really enlightening. Well,
1: thank Thank you you for having me.
0: Our pleasure. Um, So uh, Roxy Danielson, um, if you could just, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, um, how should they do that?
1: You can get in touch with me through Twitter. You can look me up on Twitter. My handle is at RoxyXRN, so R-O-X-I-E-X-R-N.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and, thank uh, you so
1: much for having me. Thank you, Stephen and Roxy Danielson, for today's conversation. You can find out more about Roxy's work and how to contact her in our show notes. The Rooster Crows is a podcast run by Lawrence Park Community Church, a United Church of Canada congregation in Northern Toronto. It's hosted by Rev. Roberta Howey and Stephen Milton, with this episode recorded by Stephen Milton.
0: For other episodes, for more information on our programming, and for more information about us as a church, check us out at lawrenceparkchurch.ca.